Hey guys, welcome back to the Rhythm Section, brought to you by the Mind Refinery. I'm Kyle Bodanis. This week, Coburn and I continue our series on the producers that shaped our current musical landscape with a look at the work of Trent Reznor. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you have time, follow the Mind Refinery on social media. And now, here's the show. All right, guys, here today to continue our exploration of the producers that have influenced music today the most with Trent Reznor is co-host of the Rhythm Section, Coburn Blair. Coburn, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I got to give props to Mind Refinery creative Andrew Van Eek. Uh, This guy was like noticing I was busting ass on a pitch and randomly got me a copy of the All Hallows EP by AFI, which is like one of my favorite punk albums or EPs. Uh, and I was like very excited about it, was listening to it, was banging it, fucking incredible. So it, it, it's been a good weekend so far. It was a nice introduction to the weekend. So wait, all AFI are considered punk? Okay, yo, this is okay. So a lot of people are like, yo, Kyle, what are you talking about AFI for? They're the dudes who did Miss Murder, right? And I'm like, they're garbage. And it's like, wrong, wrong. They are actually fantastic. The problem with AFI is AFI used to be a fucking super incredible band that skirted the edges of goth, hardcore, and straight up uh, American brand punk. And uh, they kind of got lost in the mix uh, when they, uh, you know, started putting out music that was like progressively more pop and would absolutely recommend their early albums, uh, especially All Hallows EP, Black Sails on the Sunset. Uh, fantastic fucking albums, especially if you're into punk. I feel like I only know them for like December Underground and like that kind of era. Yeah, I would definitely recommend. Listen, if you're into if you, if you're into the punk music with the the woes and the like quick thrashy beats. Uh, the earlier AFI, especially the first like three albums, four albums are like definitely for you. Uh, but yeah, they just like once they put out, um, you know, they came up with that single, The Girl's Not Gray. Is that I believe that is the name of it. I can't remember. I tried to block it out of my memory. It wasn't, you know, they're not that good. They used to be so incredible live. And I would absolutely recommend listening to them, but they just kind of like imploded. I would compare, you know, that to the offspring. I would say that um, they are more, I can't even say them more because like the first three offspring records, Ignition, uh, Smash, and uh, like Exnay, and I think there may have been a self titled before that, were like infinitely great examples of socal punk but then they just dropped off like after americana so like that is kind of the fate it's it's too bad because these are two great punk bands who kind of really kind of embodied uh coming out of the 90s and early 2000s this like raw aggressive sound that you just could not help but slam dance to uh if you saw them live i saw offspring with cypress hill and uh, they were fucking incredible. And I've seen AFI a couple times and they are just, the, the crowds get wild. So wait, how's the Misfits cover on that AFI album? How is the Misfits cover on that album? It's okay. That, no, that's, that wasn't a, r- a ringing endorsement. I mean, I like the Misfits version. Yeah. I would say that AFI used to be a good, like, heir to the Misfits throne. I'm not too, like, big on uh, the cover. I would say my fa- my favorite 
uh, track on the one I got, I'll house you, is uh, Fall Children, which is just like a absolute fucking banger. But I mean, but overall, it's good. I mean, I just am a big fan of the Misfits, too. So I prefer listening to Misfits sing their stuff, if you will. That makes sense. That makes sense to me. Yes. So what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about Trent Reznor and just his overall effect uh, on music. So I mean, we're talking the Oscar and Grammy, the the Oscar and Grammy winning Prince of Darkness himself, the man who brought the electronica to the alternative nation, became a defining producer and pioneer of industrial music. Uh, just more than an industrial goth object of worship, he has successfully married both synth pop and post punk with heavy metal. With ambient, selling tens of millions of albums in the process, and and you know just randomly becoming the go-to film and television composer with his longtime partner, Atticus Ross. Uh, absolutely staggering career. Uh, really excited to get into it. And uh, as a starting point, I kind of want to talk about like what is your overall relationship with you know Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor, like the non-stands vantage point uh aka the opposite of mine and, and just like your perception of industrial music like let me know like let's hear it uh so i feel like you know growing up nine inch nails is that one of those bands and i think that as you get older and you kind of get into bands you realize who they are more but you know you see the NIN or the NI with the backwards N everywhere. You see the t-shirts, you see the posters, you hear about them, you know that they are good, you know that they're important and, you know, somewhat foundational kind of growing up. And then, you know, Trent Reznor kind of gets into movies. So you you hear the name a lot. Uh, American, what, four comes out. Johnny Cash's Hurt version is everywhere. You know that it's done originally by Nine Inch Nails. And then you kind of... I think at one point I saw Nine Inch Nails at a festival, I want to say. And I had like a lot of friends who were into them. So, you know, I gave them a shot and really kind of took me a little bit to get into the music. But once I did and kind of got over that initial hump, I realized, you know, what I've been missing, their importance, and just kind of like their overall impact on a scene that I didn't like kind of participate in, but, you know, influence things that I really loved. It's weird because I was never really a goth, quote unquote, if we're getting into archetypes, although I would not limit their music to that. But I, uh, I it was it, for some reason, you know, Nine Inch Nails had always seemed somewhat different. And there was more of like, you know, Trent Reznor, his importance is like at this point, you can't be it can't really be overstated um you know he's an auteur uh he's taking music to another level inspiring like another generation of producers and musicians i mean lady lady gaga covered are you afraid of Americans?" cites him as an influence uh mumford and son sucks but they covered hurt and they're popular uh you hear the deep bass grooves you know and blending of layers of analog instruments in this current iteration of electropop, there's an entire generation of wannabe industrial acts as well, like, you know, like Filter and Stabbing Westward, which are terrible. I mean, Grimes, who is substantially more original than those uh, bands I just mentioned, um, you know, another person hugely influenced by Trent Reznor. And you see it in the darker industrial influenced production in hip hop, like with 21 Savage. Like in his last record, Savage Mode, like there was a very dark overtures for it that I believe directly, you know, come from, you know, Nine Inch Nails. And, you know, and if we're talking pop music of today, the the legacy of Trent Reznor's 
inescapable and you know another billy eilish another one who is dipping into the Reznor vault has cited him as an influence and you know he's collaborated with and remixed marilyn manson david bowie saul williams he's worked with lp from run the jewels zach de la rocha um he did a song for Fahrenheit 9-11, the rest of the music I believe that will never fucking come out. And he works with Atticus Ross. Like, at this point, it's just so expansive. But I always found that I, I never really went into the, you know, industrial camp too much other than, like, a couple key notes. Like, I'm into Skinny Puppy. I like uh, Nine Inch Nails. And, um, I mean, I kind of outside like ministry but i'm not too into it i'm into like Bauhaus, but you know like i felt that the music kind of elevated that and there was like a thrashy punk post-punk you know feeling to it so like for me it like it always was separated differently than you know the rest of the goth stuff if that makes any sense at all yeah i think that makes a lot of sense to me like you know just kind of the brushes of it and you know where you can kind of uh sink deeper into the genre, because I think industrial two is a little bit of a challenging genre. It I is. I think it's a be- genre. That, yeah, I, because of the I, headspace I think it's, required with it. Yeah, and I think you you really have to kind of know what you like about music to kind of get into it. If it's not like you know your primary genre. Yeah. No. No. I absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. Especially. You know, when you consider, like, for example, one of the big industrial acts is Ministry. I'm not a big Ministry fan. I've never, uh, I mean, Land of Rape and Honey was a pretty good album. I'm not too into the other stuff. I wasn't too into, like, KMFDM or anything like that. Although, I'm not, no disrespect to these groups. Uh, There's foundational music. But, like, in terms of who Trent Reznor would cite as influences that I am into, like, I'm into... Like, I, I definitely, again, as I mentioned, Bauhaus, David Bowie. I mean, he cites Low by David Bowie as, like, a huge influence. I mean, the song, if anybody has heard the song uh, Night Clubbing by Iggy Pop, then, like, you can he- like you hear it in, you know, in Nine Inch Nails' work. And I think, and, and especially going into the, you know, the first album we're going to talk about, like, their first one, Pretty Hate Machine. Now, have when did you listen to this album first? Like, have, have you heard this album in its entirety? I have heard this album in its entirety. I probably first listened to it around, I want to say maybe 2006 or 2007. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I think around then. But I think also, too, with, like, you know, Trent's influences, like, I don't think you can shy away from, he talks about Depeche Mode being there, you know, their, their 1986 album, and also Prince. I think you can hear a lot of that in the kind of industrial sound. Yeah, I'm trying to remember which, yeah, especially Sign of the Times. Like, I think people kind of don't, like, look at the lineup between those, like, Sign of the Times is a really, like, electronic influenced album. And um, I think, I'm trying to remember what song, but it was Alphabet Street, I think is the track. He 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 nicked from uh, Prince in a sample. I'm trying to remember what it was. But yeah, and Depeche Mode, and like, that's a thing when you're with Pretty Hate Machine, where you're really going to hear why it's kind of, beginning i mean because like in my opinion he starts first as an electronic artist obviously it's the blend of guitars and all that kind of stuff he's into things like joy division so there's guitar heavy stuff and um like the album movement the earlier the earliest iteration of you know the point uh the post fucking um 
Ian Curtis, you know, New Order stuff. So, like, Depeche Mode especially, is you really hear it in that. And then, like, when Violator drops, you hear that in other uh, Nine Inch Nails, you know, music moving forward. So, like, it's, it's a very good point. It cannot be overstated. So this album, you know, he recorded in his downtime while working at a recording studio in his hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. He literally recorded himself with the exception of the drums, like was everything was based in, as you mentioned, Prince, Public Enemy, and Jane's Addiction. So he was taking samples uh, from them, and then he kind of like put a full band together and went on tour with the Jesus and Mary Chain, another big gospel act. And like when you think of his sound, the Jesus and Mary Chain makes complete sense because... You know, they fuck, we know with the song Reverence, they fuck with uh, drum machines and stuff like that. And just their uh, dedication to noise rock and um, layering of guitars feedback is really kind of present here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Who else, when you when you listen, do you do you cite do you you know do you hear in his uh, in in in, the, in especially this pretty hate machine? That's a good question. I like I know he's mentioned like reading back on it you know he's mentioned my bloody valentine uh devo so i think that like like you said with him pulling in these more electronic elements to to the early work and fusing that with you know his kind of instrumentation i don't i just think it kind of gives a really unique spin and it also challenges genre a bit there and i think that you know there have been obviously examples and you can get the influence there. But I think when you're doing something like that, you know, back in 1989, it feels new and it feels challenging. Challenging. Like, do you like this album? I have the question. No judgment here. I Like, I think this album, it took me a while to get it. And I think, you know, at, you know, years later, 12 years later, I get this album now and I can appreciate it more than I did the first time I heard it. Yeah. For me, there was a time and place where I listened to this album a lot. Uh, like, fuck, I have an autographed copy of it. I'm a huge, for, like, in case it's not already um, obvious, I'm a huge Nine Inch Nails stan and a huge Trent Reznor fan. I, I think that the problem with this album, if there is any, is that it's very rooted in its time. Like, you hear, like, where's this influence, like, where's this influences on his sleeve? So, in this, you're hearing... Like you mentioned, Depeche Mode, New Order, Skinny Puppy. Like you're hearing this kind of stuff. You're hearing some of the other influences too, but and craft work, but they're really they kind of loom large on this. And then also, I had mentioned uh, Movement, which is the first New Order album after uh, Ian Curtis died, thus ending Joy Division. And like a track like Sin, which like it almost completely sounds like a New Order track, or it sounds like, you know, Bizarre Love Triangle or Truth Faith, uh, True Faith. So it's like really kind of interesting how that gets incorporated. And then you see, it's funny because you see like the production styles on this kind of rear their heads in the beginning uh, with Daft Punk, who again, cite uh, Nine Inch Nails as as an influence. So who was in Nine Inch Nails at this time? Who is Nine Inch Nails other than Trent at this time? At this time, it's just Trent Reznor. And then he would eventually, in his touring band, would bring on, like, Richard Patrick, who eventually started the band Filter, which is terrible. And we'll talk yeah. more about that in a bit. Which are, which there are, and he's, like, I think, and, you know, Trent Reznor, there's, like, 
an ire he has for the like he he really admires some of the people who have been like influenced by the band but then some of the the more like copycat ones again like filter or stabbing westward there is like definitely an ire for it you know what i mean and yeah i mean this whole album like the the recording of it is really interesting because you know it was by himself he's just doing it with samples it was like really kind of do it yourself and he just kind of saw himself working every night at a recording studio and he's like okay well i'm gonna fucking i'm just gonna fucking record it you know what i mean and it's very much you know of its time but like in in my opinion and you know some of the more less critically thinking Nine Inch Nails stands will probably not like this, but I think it's definitely not. Um, it's not the one that's going to be on his tombstone. We'll put it that way. It's very dated. Yeah, but like, is is it dated in a bad way? Do you do you think because of like you know his influence at the time because he was doing it alone? Is that like, or does the date the dating kind of of this album you know kind of place it? at a time and a place and it's something that you know obviously because it's, it's still influential right like you know head in a hole is still i think it's still up there in his discography at least to me i mean it's a great i mean it's a great track too and it kind of yeah. really kind of you know like I, he definitely kind of strayed away from more political type language in his music well not not necessarily but like it's more like kind of inner looking until you get like start getting into his post rehab stuff i think it's uh, like i don't i'm trying to word it but i would have to say honestly if i'm being uh, critical that it's not that it isn't good it's just like it doesn't have staying power because it's so rooted in the time frame you know what i mean it's so rooted in where it is and its influences and it's a fucking awesome album but like we're gonna move on to the downward spiral and this is probably like a good segue into the downward spiral because I think with this you're really talking about with Pretty Hate Machine you're talking about the influences primarily because that's what the sum is for me. But when you go into the downward spiral, there is a massive change because he does broken the guitar. It's a very guitar heavy album, almost the complete opposite of Pretty Hate Machine, but and but when you move into the downward spiral he's creating sonic landscapes that are a really beautiful blend of electronic music darker industrial influences like ministry and just this idea of looking at a person who is destructing and like about to commit suicide it's a very dark album but just some of the stuff on it is absolutely incredible that he's able to do when did you first hear the downward spiral? I think probably in the same in the same time period. I think you know, in high school, um, is when I was like more exposed to Nine Inch Nails. It was also you know a time period where I had you know fairly a lot of free time. My friends had either record players or you know CDs, and we could trade music on hard drives and MP th- and like you know MP3 players and stuff like that. So it was a lot of downloading music and sharing music at that time, and kind of going back and listening to a lot of classic rock and um, discovering new genres. So I think it was a period of a lot of intense music discovery for me, and that is kind of like I kind of went through a period where I was like, let me sit and consume you know, all this Nine Inch Nails and all this, like, you know, other bands that I didn't really understand or don't know too much about all at once. 
I feel that even the recording process of this process of this album is pretty intense. I mean, he moved into one zero zero five zero Cielo Drive, which is the Manson uh, House. It's the Manson House. Uh, yeah. And you know what? It's fun fact. He actually uh, ran into. I'm not sure what the uh, development of the meeting was. Uh, Sharon Tate's sister, and she basically was like, "Why are you recording there?" And you know, it was one of those things where like you think it's an intense thing at the time and the energy is giving you something but then he realized it like kind of really affected him it would eventually you know cause him to leave the place and just being like you so know is, dropping the manson lore is that like a, a rock star type thing that he was doing there because like it just seems like a kind of like a lot of money and a lot of like oh i'm a, i'm trying to get this headspace you know let me do something edgy so you know get people talking about it. like I, I don't really see like the the virtue in doing that and i'm no, sure he doesn't not, either now but yeah. no no exactly and i think it totally was one of those rock star things and i think that was why like i'll give okay for example jimmy page buying Al- alistair crowley's castle right because it's of its yeah. af- affinity and um association with the occult and like yeah. I, I i'm like did this guy like do this just to add like the mysticism to led zeppelin which i mean at the like there's been so much written about led zeppelin now but at the time they were kind of a mysterious band in fact i would compare them in terms of the mystery like they are the like they are one of the archetypes of creating the mystery behind it i would say like tool kind of tried to create that in the early 2000s and late 90s this like things are you know rumors about the band interpretations are they using a mudfish to get off a groupie which is a true story is Jimmy page fucking with magic, which is not a true story. And just all these things. And you know what it reminds me of as well is like the clash early in the day, like when they were um, kind of like found and managed by Bernie Rhodes, there was this thing where like they were wearing like Nazi uniforms and stuff like that, trying to be edgy yeah. and punk and like, you know, like channel and like just outrage people. And then like Bernie Rhodes, he like brought a bunch of like swastikas and like chains and like Nazi paraphernalia one day when they were meeting and he dumped it all out on the table and he was basically like if you guys are going to put this energy out there that you should know exactly what it is and put the whole energy out there and that kind of like shied them away from like that whole thing so yeah it's absolutely i think up your ass rock musician shit to do that like or like the mars volta with a ouija board and then saying like when they're recording bedlam and goliath and then being like oh there was like bad things started happening i'm like okay fuck off like you know what i mean like it's it's absolutely just this rock excess shit because he hasn't done anything since yeah yeah, like, I mean, they're probably like like, like age that. and like at the time, or know, like having a person who was murdered in your house's sister being like that's not cool. Yeah, <laughs> was yeah. another thing. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. but like this is where base the, the downward spiral is where you see the best Nine Inch Nails lineup come out because like Robin Fink ends up replacing Richard Patrick, who again would go on to front Shitty Filter, and Robin Fink has been there. <laughs> I've seen them eleven times, and Robin Fink has been the guitar player every single time. And then their bass is it Filter? Uh, no, not what me see Filter. <laughs> oh. 
No. Oh, yeah. Are you talking? I feel like that we're getting into a like a, a hating on filter tangent, and I just wanted to to explore that a little bit. Oh, hating on filter. Okay. Well, yeah. what would you like to explore about that? I can definitely explain it. Well, have you seen Have you seen filter live at all? Yes, I saw filter live. I was only amused during Hey Man, Nice Shot, and after that, it was just whack. I think I saw them with like helmet, and who else? It was one of these shows I went to when I was like. I remember I went to this show in when I lived in the U.S. and it was like Ozzy Danzig, and uh, not it was Ozzy Danzig and Pantera. That's who it was. And I'm like, I'm not saying I'm too young for this music, but there are massive bikers here, and I can't handle it. And like the Helmet show was similar to that with Filter opening. They weren't very good. They have like two good songs, and then like their like later stuff when he started like being a little bit more emotional uh, with his music was generally terrible. So I'm going to say that generally there's no reason to explore filter, although I would not want anybody to not explore music specifically and take my opinion, but I'm saving you some hassle. They're terrible. They're low rate nine inch nails ripoffs in my opinion. Okay. That's uh, <laughs> that on that. <laughs> yes. Um, and then Danny Loner would join, uh, would, would end up playing bass for them. That for me is like the classic Nine Inch Nails lineup. Okay. So, so yeah. I feel like this, th- this album I, I heard probably around the same time when I was listening to everything else. And I think I heard the 2004 version of it. Uh, so it was like the deluxe. Oh, the re- yeah, like, the deluxe that they're charging $32. Yeah, no, for. The remix album we'll, we'll get into after, but yeah, yeah. the deluxe edition had uh, a cover of, what band? What song? Was it oh, a Joy uh, was Division it, song? Yeah, it was Dark Souls by Joy Division. Yeah. It, yes. Great, co- yeah. fucking incredible cover. Dead, dead, dead Souls. Fantastic. Yeah, it was Dead Souls. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, really, really good. Ended up on the the Crow soundtrack, which is fucking get the Crow soundtrack if, you're into, if you want to get into the dark shit. It's really good. So, I mean, I have a question for you now. Like, if when you listen to Pretty Hate Machine and you listen to the downward spiral like what for you is the sonic development like what are the biggest things that difference that you hear in it i feel like for me at least downward spiral seems more fully formed so i think it's a more realized album and it like to me this sounds like nine inch nails not that pretty hate machine doesn't sound like nine inch nails but this sounds like you know what i think nine inch nails is like what they sound like if that makes sense. No, it makes complete sense. It's definitely more of a, um, a fully realized idea, which is why I, again, you know what I mean? Like it kind of expands the relationship between heavy music and electronic music and why I think pretty hate machine is good, but it's not timeless. You know, downward spiral kind of pushes the needle all, on all fronts. It's like dark and it's moody and it's far more aggressive in places. You definitely see the influence of broken on it, but also, you know, it adds these like moments of reflection. Again, it's about a guy going through a downward spiral who eventually that would eventually winds in him, you know, killing himself. And if you think about hurt at the end of this, you know, it all kind of makes sense. And you know, like I, I think there's like punk in it. You know, there's hard rock elements. You have songs like March of the Pig, which is punk and thrash sounding in a way, and then Heresy, like you know, it opens with this like sequencer and it's got the loud chorus and but then it like after the first chorus it just goes into this like like every time it's on when i drive i have to go faster like grinding pulsating beat and it's just like 
really, really crazy what they were, you know, kind of able to do. And it kind of like pushes the, the boundary of, you know, kind of any subwoofer. Were there any tracks on this that stood out to you? Uh, so I always liked the, the Dead Souls cover. I think, is it Piggy or March of the Pigs? March of the Pigs. Like? Yeah. Piggy's good too. Piggy's good too. I think, yeah, I think I like March of the Pigs is probably my favorite off of this album. And then obviously Hurt's on here too. So I think, yeah, Hurt, I think is, you know, I think we both know it's a standout song. I think it's a, it's a wonderful piece of songwriting. And to me, it's like, their most iconic song even though i think it's one of those songs you know much like um bob dylan's along all on the watchtower where there's a version of it that i prefer i was about to ask would you which would you prefer the johnny cash version i prefer the johnny cash version but i really like obviously the original and i think i like the sounds of it i think they're i prefer them for for different reasons in uh, in different moods well i think the when Johnny Cash sings it, the context changes because, you know, like in the original makeup of the album about a person, you know, who's tumbling towards suicide, it's kind of different than a man whose life is almost over. And there's like a self reflective way of looking at it because you see like June Carter in there as well. And, you know, like things that he's done to his relationship because of drug addiction and stuff. And then there's parallels, you know, about Reznor's drug addiction and like Reznor himself is being like, I can't even really say it's my song anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like, you know, that's exactly what, you know, we heard from Bob Dylan after all along the watchtower. I mean, he's playing slide parts with a Zippo. Um, So like, I mean, the, the Jimi Hendrix version of that song is obviously like... In, so incredible and inspiring and he played all of it i mean i believe he brought did he bring in dude from traffic to play the bass and then just ended up fucking doing it himself yeah like it's like it's so ridiculous you know what was able to accomplish with that cover and i i do think that if you're looking at situations where the original i i think you're looking at like you're looking at those two songs and then respect the Otis Redding version to the uh, Aretha Franklin version. Aretha Franklin version, yeah. Yeah, I think, like, that's what you're talking about with fucking differences. In- and I think that's, like, in all of music, you know, these songs are standout songs and standout covers. But also, I want to get back into to this album a lot, though. What did you think of the, the video work on this, al- on this album? Oh, well, like, did you absolutely- see the video for Closer? Yeah, I was. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of how I got. That's kind of like again, uh, you know, the the kind of the thread is music videos and how I was kind of influenced by those. I mean, the closer video. I mean, I always love that song because it just grooved, right? And then you know, obviously, it was something that. I mean, I can't even say, I was about to say it's something that parents hate, but I can't even necessarily say it's something my parents hate because, like, four of the Nine Inch Nails shows I went to, I went with my mother. Uh, so, like, I wasn't really, like, it wasn't really, like, a, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There wasn't a lot of, like, limits put on that kind of thing, so I could, like, listen to it. But, do, like, the do you think that video so could come out today? Would it, like, you know, move the needle anymore? It wouldn't even, ba- it wouldn't even bat an eye today. They're too worried about little Nas X. You know what I mean? They're too <laughs> yeah. worried about, like, you know what I mean? Like, now it's like, but like, at the time when that video came out, like, obviously the Tipper Gores and the fucking, you know, the, 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 the whole morality police just, like, completely went all over it, too. And then this was compounded by the fact that when they, 
you know, when they found Dylan Klebold's, um, who was one of the the shooters at uh, at Columbine, like when they found his journals, he had like nine inch nails lyrics quoted from that from this album. Yeah, and I'm like. Uh, you know, and then everyone, it just adds to the people going fucking crazy about it. Then it's like even compounded further by his association with fucking Marilyn Manson and producing, um, I believe it was Portrait of American Family or was it Smells Like Children, but he definitely did, um, Antichrist Superstar and then that's role in it. So, you know what I mean? Like he's part of the whole, the whole morality police thing that's happening because it's happening with gangster rap at the fucking same time for like a good period in the nineties. And then it's the same with fucking this. Yeah, well, I think it's funny to even bring up Little Nas X because, like, you know, his number one song samples Nine Inch Nails yeah. too. Yeah, so him and Atticus Ross got a fucking sound, got a credit on it because they did. Yeah, from- I think it's like you know, it's like one of their uh, one of Trent Reznor's like highest selling songs. Yeah, of, it's it's like, just a, it's a random sample from like Ghosts yeah. uh, one through four. Yeah, which is which is fucking which is pretty intense. Well, it speaks to his influence, right? Like, you know, it's like exactly that's all sectors and, of music, and that's it. I mean, like, well. I mean, well, let's talk about this album and innovation. Like, like what for you is innovative about this album? I think, you know, getting into it, like, it's just like the sounds just felt more palatable. I think, you know, more defined and more self-assured. We get a little bit more strength out of, you know, the industrial kind of sounds, the... I think there's a better fusion too of electronic and instrumental where, you know, the lines are really blurred between the two on this album. And I think it's just a bit more kind of self-assured, but also somewhat definitive. Yeah, I think this is kind of where he begins to emerge as a studio genius because he's really got the financing and major label backing through Interscope. I mean, he had uh, a falling out with uh, TVT Records. Jimmy Iovine helped him get out of that contract. It was pretty much like a fucking phone call. They talk about it in uh, what's the documentary series called with Jimmy Iovine and Dre and shit. Oh, the special ones or something like that? Defiant Defiant The Defiant ones. ones. That's it. That's it. I'm thinking, thinking Jose Marino, like the special. <laughs> I mean, and basically, what happens here is he starts incorporating. The big thing is he starts incorporating older equipment, like from Pretty Hate Machine to like newer uh, synth technology, MIDI technology. He's adding, um, as you said, like he's incorporating live instruments. It's funny because him and Dr. Dre are so similar in terms of approach. Because and th- I always consider them the flip side of each other. Like if you were to say who's the rock equivalent of Dr. Dre, I would always say it's Trent Reznor. Because what he does is like he's recording samples live off the floor as well. So he'll come in. Um, I believe on this album he worked with he worked with Adrian Ballou, who was um, a guitar player for King Crimson, a fucking genius. He worked with Stephen Perkins from Jane's Addiction, and I can't remember one of the other ones. I know that it was fucking Alan Mulder or was it Flood? I can't remember. I always lose track with his engineers. So, like, you hear him recording them off off the floor and all this kind of stuff. But what he does is is that he, like, run, like he just puts them through, you know, filters. And he's putting, them, like, adding distortion. You know, like, he's, he's, he's taking it. And that's why you hear, like, the kind of the variety in the sounds. He's, like, he's playing with weird fucking time signatures. He move, he's moving away from standard pop structure. And this, you know, he's using a fucking, he's, he's using computers. He's just... 
there's a level of meticulousness that is just out of control on what he does. How do you think that adds to his mystique? Like, do you think like this is kind of what cemented him for fans or, you know, were people on from broken or like, what was it that like, you know, kind of turned the needle and like moved everything for him? Cause it seems like he like kind of got on the road fairly quickly. You know, he's doing this album, you know, which is, really critically acclaimed like was it like received at the time as well this album was pretty well received i mean like even the village voice gave it and they're like the most pretentious reviewers humanly possible like i used to think that pitchfork is the worst but then i read some like older reviews uh by village voice uh like for example on with teeth which we'll we'll talk about um it was like this was an album well received that is you know established its legacy pretty quick uh on round just before broken he ended up playing on Lollapalooza. so you know it's a it's an album that is universally universally acclaimed from a critical standpoint and um i think a lot of people got into when they were kind of reviewing his music into him chasing this which i don't necessarily think was fair so let's i want to know a little bit more about further down the spiral like how does that come about you know does that make sense is that natural is that like a label creation you know we get apex twin on there rick rubin you know why would trent do that around this time i think it's because he comes from a culture of electronic music and like the remix is super important in electronic music. So I, I think there was an idea to re kind of like recreate these sounds in a different headspace. I love further down the spiral, probably the mm, trying to think, which is my favorite one, maybe heresy. I can't, meh. but like, I know that Rick Rubin was a, you know, was a big person pushing for it and that they worked, you know, pretty close on it. Aphex twin makes complete sense with it. And I thought those contributions were really fantastic, but I mean, like he does this as well. Like for example, he did broken and then does fixed, which is like a lot more of an electronic remix of a song of a album that is like heavily, um, guitar, influenced and probably i would say his album that is the most guitar oriented so like it's what he does and also like you have to remember from a production standpoint he remixes and they also had a contest he put out a uh, contest i'm trying to remember the whole fucking thing behind it but basically it was to remix a nine Nails song and then, then like the best one they ended up using and then so you had a whole bunch of fans trying to remix you know these tracks so i think there is an understanding because you know what i mean like it's it's a whole different thing than um you know standard guitar based rock music in terms of like the remix and the cover like the thinking of it's different you know what i mean like like electronic and hip-hop come from uh especially like things like the origins of electronic and hip-hop coming from like jamaica where it's like samples and like shouting out things and fucking dub plates like that's part of the culture you know and like he kind of absorbs that moving forward through his influences yeah like he's he's kind of open to that i think that's a really interesting thing too because like when i think of nine inch nails i don't think i like i don't think of the remix i I don't think of that as much but like you know it is electronic music right it is and he you know seems to be open to that from an early space yeah, and I think it manifested itself interest like in interesting ways in terms of when he did his singles. Like if you listen to the closer to the, to God, I guess EP, but it's re- really the single for uh, closer. It's just six different versions of the song remixed by I believe him and different people together. 
which is an interesting way of doing it because that was a huge single. So, I mean, there's the whole post-rehab era with Trent Reznor. And it was interesting because, like, he made the album The Fragile, which on that tour, the Fragility tour, was the first time I ever saw them. I saw them, and they were just absolutely incredible. I was, like, 16, 17, and, like, the presence on the stage was crazy. But, like, that tour ended up breaking, like, almost breaking him. And... It's interesting the way how it, it all came about because, you know, he was on such a, a run and, you know, people, you know, he drops the fragile um, critics are kind of mixed about it because on some hands, people uh, like a lot of Nine Inch Nails fans think that's we'll call that their favorite album. But like a lot of the critics kind of said it was like lyrically melodramatic and like it was a little too, what's the word I'm looking for? Indulgent. Uh, I think it's a fantastic album. It turned out really well live. I think it's maybe a little long, but there's some fantastic tracks on it, but he kind of, again, he hits a wall uh, after the tour. Um, And he kind of just, what's Bob Esvern's contribution to the fragile? I mean, it was a combination of like, production and a combination of like mentorship with that because i think with some of the things he's tried to do like he cites the wall as a as a big influence yeah you know what i mean uh and and a lot of downward spiral was about that but i think his most pink floydy ambition on this is you know in his discography is the fragile uh, is the fragile because like if you look at it and just how it breaks down is that it really is going in and out and a it's it's a look like usually Nine Inch Nails albums look out but this is really about a person's relationship with the world and um it's dysfunctionality and how that comes together and there is like a really big sonic landscape on this and I think that it makes sense given that his music was very tight before not that he wasn't used to crafting you know these these tangents and these slayered tracks and all this kind of stuff it's that to take it to a next sonic step it needed someone who was like completely understanding of what that looks like and I, and bob ezrin is obviously one of the greatest producers in rock history and he yeah. just knows that inside and out he understands that he understands creating an oral landscape yeah, I feel like I got to shout Bob Ezrin out because he is from Toronto and he also went to my high school. Bob Ez- Bob Ezrin went to what high school is that? Oh, Oakwood, Oakwood Collegiate. Oakwood Collegiate. Yeah, he, it's yeah. um, I mean, uh, you can talk for hours about how fucking good Bob fucking Ezrin is. Like, just the if you're just looking at, I mean, this guy even like, and he never really w- went off, right? Like, this guy's producing from. Peter Gabriel, he co-produced Strays by Jane's Addiction. He's worked with the Jayhawks. Uh, he produced Destroyer. He produced fucking Coolest Shaker, Nine Inch Nails, fucking Fish. He produced The Wall. He produced A Momentary Lapse of Reason. Like he, uh, like this, it goes on and on and on and on. I think he mixed uh, the fucking Speak Now World Tour DVD um, a recording. Um, like there is just so much that he's done uh, to just enrich the rock landscape. I think he produced a, a Canon song as well. Deftones. Like there's, I'm trying to just think off. Uh, unfortunately, the darkness. And it's just like a 
pretty crazy. And, you know, considering that he's a countryman and uh, it's really fuck and from Toronto, it, it, it's super fucking cool. So, I mean, like if you're going to work, getting the opportunity to work with Bob Ezrin just makes fucking sense. Like, you know what I mean? And, and, and when I kind of first learned that he had worked on the fragile, it like it didn't. I'm like, of course he did. That's the person who's going to help him get there. And I think what I like about Trent Reznor is there is there there's a level of humility with what he does. So he's not. I, I, Kanye West is like that. There's no hesitation in bringing in someone else to help you get to another fucking step. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think that's that kind of speaks to why we're doing this episode, why we're talking about Trent Reznor, and then why you can bring up like people like Dr. Dre or, or Kanye West with him in terms of production. But I think it's also there's something that's really uncompromising about Trent Reznor's style and his work ethic. And I think, you know, we're get, talking about him in the studio as well. But I know we're kind of shifting now a little bit to kind of the fallout from uh, the fragile and, you know, what period of his life he kind of goes into. Um, on and the, Bo- for, for and the Bob album. Ezrin, bringing up the Bob Ezrin is a good point because Bob Ezrin, like when interviewed about it in hindsight, like understood that this was a guy who was at the end of his rope and who was largely strung out and it was partly the exhaustion and you know the drug abuse and the and the depression where he just kind of hit a wall with it where it's like am i going to be alive and he decides to go to rehab he's got the he's got the longest basically i'm trying to yeah it's the longest gap between albums here uh which is the fragile which was released in 1999 and with teeth which was 2004 i believe it released in 2005 and it's like a complete kind of tonal shift you know what i mean have so you've heard the fragile yes yes i have okay so what is your thoughts on the fragile so i think i like the the timber i want to say of the album i want to say like it's kind of I think it, it, I don't know if I, well, I want to say it stands out, but I feel like kind of what you're talking about earlier with, with him being at the end of his rope, I think some of that kind of bleeds through on this album. And I think you kind of get that through his music because I think there's a certain honesty from Trent Reznor in his music and that, you know, kind of, you can kind of get a little bit more of a sense of who he is, even if he's not communicating that directly i think that kind of leaks into the music and i think you can kind of see what's coming when you're listening to the fragile yeah it's it's because it's one of those albums that is just it's sonically rich and enjoyable but like it's also just really melodramatic it's excessive and that was the that was the that was the big that was the big note on it was that you know from reviewers which the village voice fucking panned it i was it the village way to pan it yes but and a lot of the criticism is that it is too melodramatic and that it needs to scale back and that you know all and kind of saying he's at the end of his rope and it is a very excessive album but you get to an album like with teeth and it's probably other than broken his most guitar oriented album i mean it's definitely probably the album that has the most overtly political messaging especially when you consider the live shows the imagery he was using he was really kind of taking the george bush iraq war situation to task but it also turns inwards and deals with self-loathing and dealing with this like post-addiction situation so when you say like it bleeds in i completely you know it definitely bled into it because 
there's a guy who was on your rope. It went for, he went from like doing cocaine to like doing tons of coke to like, he works and drinks black coffee. He said in an interview, that's kind of like what he did was just drink black coffee. So was there tension with Marilyn Manson, you know, making the fragile? Like there's always kind of been rumors of that. Is that like, was that kind of on the album? Was there an issue between the two? Yeah. I, I think it's like two drug addled egos just end up smashing into each other. And I think that also because Trent Reznor has kind of said later that, you know, you just see a guy who's acting out the drug situation. Right. And that's not necessarily the situation he needs. And like, this is a guy who's produced, like Marilyn Manson's most important album, the album that if Marilyn Manson was to move forward and be remembered for long periods of time, Antichrist Superstar and maybe The Dope Show would be the albums that people kind of remember. I've never been a big fan of Marilyn Manson. Like for me, he's, you know, kind of just overtly embracing the strung out rock starness. Um, and I think that was where it was. And there was, you know, creative disagreements about working together. And there was, you know, and I think it was just, he was at the end of his rope and I think probably a lot of him seeing that he was at the end of his rope was watching Marilyn Manson because that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. you know, they're kind of like a self-reflection. Oh, well, yeah. You start to see it right. In that dude. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think the fragile was his most sonically expressive album. It wasn't tight as the downward spiral. And this is probably, this helped, this helped bring back his rock chops and him like, like he came out of, you know, deep, deep addiction to kind of to put this out here, and it's pretty tight. He's 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 layering guitars, painstakingly paying attention to detail. His admission is that it's more like a collections of songs that are friends with each other rather than an entire album. And I think that that kind of fits fits the bill. It's like, so do you think there's is there label pressure to get this out? Is that kind of like part of it at this time? I don't, th- I don't think so. I think it's more. I think the problem is it's like at at the end of the day, he signed Interscope, he creates nothing records and, you know, he's got his own creative landscape, but like at some point it's like, what are you pumping money into? And like uh, one of the things that kill that, you know, kills a label more than anything is drugs. Um, It's just, it's never good. Um, It destroyed factory records and among other things. And I don't think it was label pressure from a creative standpoint. I think it was more like there is pressure in his life to be productive. But at the same time, I mean, Jimmy Iovine has seen the face of addiction before. And what happens if you push too much? And also, if you have Dr. Dre signed to your label, you can't really complain about, you know, gaps between music altogether. You know what I mean? Even though Dr. Dre, though, his big thing was that, you know, he was able to bring other people along as well. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, this is... I think now during the fragile era, they are picking up Eminem and Eminem's about to become or, or, you know, during the same era as the biggest superstar in the world. Absolutely. And you're seeing the renaissance. It's funny because you're seeing the renaissance of Dr. Dre at that point. And then a few and then like a few years later, you're going to see the renaissance of of Trent Reznor, uh, which is, yes. you know, which is which, which is which is great because him producing music at this rate uh like this is, I mean, we're going to talk about his output and how this changed it, but this, it completely, uh, you know, changed the game. And um, I don't think till till I did research on on this podcast that I knew that Nine Inch Nails was on Interscope Records. I would have never have known that or guessed that. Yeah, man, it was I like it was the perfect situation for him because like Jimmy Iovine 
one thing that is good about him is that he kind of understands creativity. Um, business is important to him, but because he physically worked in the studio as producer like he's worked with i mean also he worked with tom petty and tom petty it's not temperamental but like tom petty wants to do things a certain way and wants to you know do his thing so like he kind of understands it and he understands also the drug situation too because you have like stevie nicks he's working with you know what i mean and he kind of has seen it and then he kind of went through it as well so he's like a good he's like a good person to do it so in terms of with teeth which is the like post rehab album that uh you know what is like did you like it what were the tracks that stood out to you um so with teeth i kind of got into it this is like the era when I was li- like I was listening to it when it was kind of a concurrent album. So I knew about the hand that feeds because of the music video and the premiere. And that was kind of like the reintroduction. And I believe there was like a kind of the garage band file sharing thing. I just remember being interested in music, having garage band on my computer and trying to follow along with kind of what was happening in that era and then the david fincher video for only so i think this is an album i kind of approached much more on the basis of singles and you know what was widely available and i think too this was me exploring nine inch nails you know there'd been a hiatus but i wasn't really affected by the hiatus because i was coming in late so I was kind of consuming all the music at the same time. And it kind of, I think, changed the way that I understood it. Because, you know, going back and listening to it now for this podcast, you can kind of like see the differences where I was listening to all these albums, you know, kind of in a jumble. And so I didn't really kind of get this, the differences and the nuances between the albums uh, so much as when I first heard it. It's like i think i think it's a good return because i mean if you consider like some of the like the big thing is that you know the critics who did kind of pan it were just like it's nothing new but like i don't know i mean this kind of made me pull back from trusting critics because like i followed rock writers so closely and that was a big part of my growing up like this album was written after an absolutely nightmarish period in Reznor's life, um, you know, where he got got clean, he reestablished himself as an artist, got focused, and, you know, there was a notion to say he was redundant in his catalog, and I'd be like, well, which Nine Inch Nails album really sounds like this? Because, uh, like, it's Nine Inch Nails sound, but, like, if, if you listen to tracks like Only or The Hand That Feeds or um, The Opener, All the Love in the World, which is this, like, really cool piano-y part, and then, like, the coda of it is a super, like, house-style beat, deep bass thumping, you know, Beside You a Time, which is this textured guitar over sequencer. Like, it's not the same as everything else. I think to say that, it's like, well, I'm sure you would have reviewed other bands whose, you know, music is more, you know, whose music is more closely, you know, from album to album, you know, sonically together. You know what I mean? If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, like a lot of people kind of like when they were reviewing this album said it was kind of more of the same and that, you know, Trent hadn't really presented anything fresh on here. And I don't know if it's like hindsight kind of being 2020 or the music having aged pretty well, but those takes seem very like stale and very 
you know, like they didn't have any foresight into, I think his genius, right? Like, I think when you kind of contextualize the music and you listen back, I don't like, you know, it's still fresh. It's still new. It still doesn't really sound like a, a lot of other, you know, works. And there's still things that are derivative of it. So I don't know. I, like, what, what was it, do you think, about critics at the time that they were reviewing this that, you know, kind of turned them off of it? Personal taste, maybe. I, I think that it's hard to say because when you consider, I mean, you can't consider all the different things that went into it, like his situation and, and like it's a miracle that the album got made. But I think with Nine Inch Nails, and this is definitely a hindsight thing, you have to look at their output in two phases. And this would be the beginning of the second phase, because this album, again, is more overtly political than the previous albums, and it begins a long track of minimizing the sound from an aggression standpoint, but maximizing, like, oral landscapes. Like, here you hear... Like here, you hear the more the other influences being reflected in his music. So you're hearing Brian Eno is a big one. Daniel Lanois is another one. Working with Bob Ezrin absolutely influenced his producing, and it just became more about landscapes. You know what I mean? Like that's that's what we're talking like what we're talking about here. And it's funny that he stopped working with Flood because like it makes sense. Like it would have made sense as a continuation, you know what I mean? Cuz um Flooded worked on things like Octune Baby um by U2, which is like a a very an album that influenced Trent Reznor quite a bit. So uh, what the critics are thinking, I don't know. I think that as I've gotten older, critics have been less important in my life because like I, I grew up in a culture of being obsessed with rock writers and that was like really what got me obsessed with music and got it, me obsessed with like writing in general so you know like at some point you kind of have to like branch off and start thinking of things for yourself and um the critics aren't always reliable that's the big that's the biggest thing i can say all you need to know is that crystal skull the indiana jones movie has a like 80 on rotten tomatoes that's uh that's a good point that movie's uh <laughs> not good at all by any means yeah so like how do you think his output changed post rehab like from a person who's not following his every step so i think you know post rehab we get so i feel like you know we got can we like are we free to talk about some of his other albums like post this absolutely like, you know, everything like year, year zero and in, in 2000 and uh 2007 we get a concept album. I feel like we're getting a little bit because I think he was kind of a little bit politically minded early on. And then mm -hmm. he kind of phased out of that. You know, he got this like kind of rock star era. Um, and I think, you know, post rehab is him kind of coming out of that era. So I think we're getting a little bit more of a clearer mind and a, and a clearer head and uh, a little bit more focus is how I would kind of describe um, the post rehab era of nine inch nails yeah because i mean he starts like he gets married has kids you know yeah. what i mean so it's kind of like what do you do when like what does the 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 grumpy industrial musician do when you know life is good all of a sudden but what happened was this ended up beginning his most productive period of time that's why i would say it's always 
you have to look at it as like the second era of, of his career. And I remember at the time in an interview, he was saying that again, all he does is work and drink black coffee instead of like doing cocaine now. So, you know, early in his career, he was making these grand artistic statements and reworking rock music, but he wasn't on a sustainable path artistically also i don't think he gets enough credit for ushering in a new phase in his career because that's completely hard right and he he does he takes it and does something completely different he's not really rehashing the old stuff and he gets progressively more political especially as we move into like again as you said year zero or the slip which are two awesome albums he's playing these like grinders social ideas out in his albums the evils of capitalism like and what it means to us and our mental states collectively instead of just looking at himself internally right and he starts moving the oral landscape with like ghosts and bad witch bad witch is an interesting example because it's you know sort of this modern amalgamation of all of his influence heavy like noise rock like you said my bloody valentine who by the way if you don't listen to my bloody valentine you go get a copy of loveless right now it's absolutely fucking fantastic um and it's blended with these like forays into jungle and house and it's just a cool album so again, I wouldn't let, I wouldn't, I would suggest not letting yourself sleep on any later Nine Inch Nails stuff if you're listening to this. How do you think, how do you think that it compares though? Like, you know, are, are any of the later works as good as the earlier works to you? You know, where do you, where are you ranking the post rehab stuff compared to the pre rehab stuff? I listen to it in a different way, if that makes sense. I would say objectively his best album is The Downward Spiral. It is completely revolutionary. It is fantastic. The songs are awesome. They translated very well live. And I don't skip around a lot when I listen to that album. I love With Teeth. I love The Slip. I love, um, you know, I love um, Year Zero. But does it is it the same as the other ones? No, I love the fragile as well. Like I listen to these albums, I listen to these albums over and over again. I have them on vinyl. I have them on fucking CD. Um, I have a couple of them on tape, like from when I was younger. And but if you listen to his composing, like what he's doing right now, is that like he's having his biggest impact on pop culture right now? Because you know we're peeling back the layers. We're seeing all the people who are influenced, and this guy's winning Oscars right so like i listen to his soundtracks all the fucking time so if you're trying to be the goth hard rock industrial heartthrob then this music isn't as good but in terms of like its quality its staying power its effect on pop culture and what he's been able to do on the cinematic front um it's a different way of looking at it but in ways it's more potent because of it's just different that's the thing is that i think people want that aggression and if they're not getting it then so what's your favorite formation of the band then you know we've kind of you've kind of got into the, the music the albums you like the best who are the ideal members of Nine Inch Nails to you other than Trent? Uh, he's brought in Atticus Ross, which is awesome because Atticus Ross adds this whole element to the like Atticus Ross is a, is is a headspace music guy. So he's very much evaluating what you know, he's he's putting out those like really, really fine brian eno like landscapes and uh sequencing and then you know the, the stuff's being painted all over and his ability to translate that live is fantastic as i said the 94 lineup with robin uh fink who is in the band right now like he's just a, such a good guitar player like 
He's got snarl. He's aggressive. He's cool on stage. He's mobile. Uh, he's always around, but he, the, the band is so tight. And for a band like Nine Inch Nails, you have to be tight because like their live show is difficult because they are incorporating all these electronic situations, right? So the preparation is important. But like if you look at their like effect, like they have keyboards all over the like it's 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 a big setup, and um. And with the Danny Loner one, I mean, if I could create the perfect lineup, I would have probably Josh Freese playing on drums. He, uh, Josh Freese is of um, a perfect circle fame. Um, Josh Freese, Danny Loner, the bass player, and then Robin Fink on guitar, Atticus Ross on keys, along with fucking, because you get the you get the two keyboard attack with um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, and then Trent Reznor can go play, like, it's a, it's a lot more... It's just a lot tighter, and I think that would probably be my best band. But if I was to say one that just existed, it would be the '94 iteration for sure. Absolutely. Okay, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. Yeah, it's 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 weird because, you know, like Robin Fink has been the longest. Like I think he's like 14 years, like even more than that. Now he's the longest tenured act of a band that's had a lot of turnover. So like I think they're getting to a point now where there's more people are sticking around and by that he's able to translate like them live on the with teeth and afterwards like the slip and the year zero tours significantly better than when i saw them before significantly it's not even close so how many times have you, have you seen them live 11 oh jeez, that's a lot of times. yes i saw them with 11 probably notable shows i saw them with uh, I can't even say that I saw them with Death from Above and Queens of the Stone Age because we were going, uh, basically my friend's girlfriend at the time, uh, I had this friend over from New York and she was like holding us up with getting ready. We missed Death from Above and Queens of the Stone Age and got there during the last two uh, Queens of the Stone Age songs. I saw them with Jane's Addiction and uh, I saw them with Jane's Addiction that that was probably the most memorable. They played a bunch of songs I hadn't heard before. Um, again, I funny story about the Jane's Addiction show is that while I was there, my mother came because my mom likes Nine Inch Nails. So she even got me the tickets. So we go with my friend Nathan and, you know, we're sitting there and people behind us really fucking nice they're smoking a hash joint she the person is like hey man take a hit and i'm like i can't he's like what do you mean he's like i'm like i can't i'm I'm not like my mom's right beside me and this was at the time where i had like not admitted that i smoke weed yet in my 20s and he was like fuck you man it's hash and then when my mom left because my mom didn't want to sit during through jane's addiction i was like hey man i'm not trying to be a dick but sorry about that that was my mother he's like your fucking mother came to a nine inch nail show i'm like yeah she left <laughs> and he's like and then it was all good but i'm like i'm not trying to be a dick all this kind of yeah. stuff and he's like ah yeah so anyways uh absolutely <laughs> ridiculous i remember during one show my old man went and my old man like went to sh- like he's a who fan and shit and david bowie he's from manchester like he's into that but like these people were standing up and my short ass mom couldn't see over them my old man was like sit down i'm like you can't tell them to sit down it's a fucking rock concert like ridiculous uh <laughs> ridiculous i want to just the final thing we just look at is it's probably the thing that best embodies his you know the the current phase of his career and that's the just the s- soundtrack work and the social network as you know as a situation and like for like would you agree that he's probably the most sought after uh him and Atticus Ross are the most sought after uh composers in film yeah I would say so and like I think you know you know from 1994 you know doing natural born killers with Oliver Stone 
to his work with Fincher, uh, even up until like, you know, pretty near present, his work on Watchmen. Um, I think he in I think he's just really, really talented at what he does. Uh, the social network score is amazing. How many Oscars does he have? Um, I'm sure he's going to get more. Uh, yeah, because he won for the social network. And that's a soundtrack I listen to fucking all the time. That's just like, amazing. Yeah. And, and even like the Gone Girl. I mean, he's doing all of Fincher's movie, the, movies at this point. I mean, like even Ken Burton's documentary, uh, Vietnam uses Nine Inch Nails tracks. He uses tracks from The Fragile as well. Uh, I think that was kind of a check, though, because uh, fucking Trent Reznor was just giving him old shit. So he's like, here, take some of this shit. The, the, and the Watchmen soundtrack was absolutely incredible. I didn't realize he, he scored Mank. I got a, I'm, it's still on my list, so I haven't seen that yet. But I'm he also to... scored what Soul? Yeah, he did Soul as well. Such a great, and he did it with John Batiste, uh, who's the mu- who's the uh, who's the musical director of um, the Late Show, uh, with fucking. Um, What's his name? Stephen Colbert. Yes. So yeah. like that was really cool to see. Like I, I I really enjoyed that amalgamation of like his like airy because it was a whole different tone compared to like the social network where the social network is a lot more stark. But he's like more playing with like brighter landscapes. And then you have this like the Creole jazz of John Batiste in with it. And it's just like absolutely fucking beautiful. And I mean, what would you say the biggest difference between, like, his production style versus contemporary composers are? I mean, I think that, you know, you get a little bit of the Nine Inch Nails style in there. I think you're getting some industrial elements uh, through a filter of film. Uh, Obviously, his sense, uh, the, the early production elements that he, you know, probably mastered in that studio in 1989 or 1988 all those years ago uh he's bringing that forward to his scoring and i think he just has a really robust and well-rounded understanding of music and i think that fits film today and i think you know when i watch Watchmen, when i watch uh was it gone girl um even even though sieg larson books uh movies that he did uh girl with the dragon tattoo it just really connects with you obviously goes without saying social network you know from start to finish that score is amazing i think that that's the first one that i really really remember and took notice of and i was like wow this is phenomenal and i think even you know when that film came out that really made me go back to to nine inch nails at that at that point as well because i was like okay what am i missing here you know like where is this where are the elements you know where's the style coming from yeah, I think his ability to reinvent himself. I mean, everyone, to an extent that we're going to talk about in this producer's situation, has has strived to create, then recreate and reinvent, and and you know what I mean. And versatility is such a big thing. And I I think he just approaches this from a completely different direction. It's it just it begins with um, you know, begins with electronic music first, and then kind of goes out from there. And then things are in, things are layered, and you just see them. I would definitely, uh, I think it was, there was not deleted scenes, sorry, special, it's like special content or whatever, uh, on the DVD was part of going into, like, for example, the, the, the thing he did during the regalia and just like his difficulties doing that and how he was able to interpret that and stuff. And I just think that it's a completely different approach and it what's good from a branding sense from him is that they're really the only people him and Atticus Ross are the only people who can actually produce that sound. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's right on the money. You know, it's like 
they have a, a special ability and I think a special bond too. And I think that like, you know, Atticus Ross, like how long have they been working together since what, 2006 or nine? Yeah. Like for, for about that. Yeah. Since yeah. the uh, mid aughts. And then it just like, it made sense from there. I think he, you know, kind of filled, I'm trying to think if I can't remember if Alan Mulder worked on, I think he did work on with teeth, but he kind of like filled that void. And as he started getting into the more like breathy landscapes, it, it just made sense. Cause Atticus Ross, uh, conform so well to that sound. So would you say like, you know, they count as a production duo, you know, on top of, you know, being bandmates and, you know, where are they in like what two bands or three bands together? Yeah. How to destroy angels as well, which is, uh, I mean, his wife is in that band, uh, Trent Reznor. Uh, yes. I mean, I, the, the, it's, they are together. Like that is that when, when the Oscar goes to him and Atticus Ross and they are equal partners in that. And I think that, Atticus Ross is just the lower profile one. And um, I think that's probably he's happy with that. But I mean, now he's becoming, you know, more himself in in demand. So like it's they're a team. I don't think they'll ever not be a team from a composing standpoint because they just like generally get each other and represent different um, different skill sets in the composing game. On that though, uh, though, Mr. Coburn, we do have to get going. This is running a little long. Uh, Want to thank you for doing this. Loved the conversation, and uh, yeah, hope you enjoyed it too. Yeah, had a good time. Looking forward to chatting with you again soon. All right, guys, we'll talk to you soon.